Would you say no pressure? <laughs> well, hey, I do want to say uh, this has been uh, one of the greatest honors and privileges in my life next to my wife and my kids to step into this role. And uh, I was thinking about this a few days ago. Uh, I preached here almost a year ago in October, and uh, I prayed one thing before I came out on the stage. I said, God, if you want me here, would you make this place feel like a home? And when I got done preaching, I had uh, a couple people come up to me and they said, hey, we just want you to know as you were preaching, we felt like this is going to be your new home. And so I have just been so blessed. You have loved my family. You have, you have served us. Uh, many of you have uh, written letters and notes, and uh, you stopped by the house. And so sincerely, for the way that you have welcomed us, we just want to say thank you, thank you, thank you. But I've also been praying that uh, for those of you who are part of Brookwood, that this idea of home would be true of you as well. That this year, whether you've been here for 20 years or 20 minutes, that uh, this year, this place would take new roots, that as you see people sitting beside you, they wouldn't be strangers, but they would be spiritual brothers and sisters. And that uh, God would, would call this place uh, to, to come alongside of you and be a home in new ways. I will say in every family, there's always like the crazy aunt and uncle, amen. And so uh, we have a few crazies around as well, but I just tell you, this is an amazing, amazing place. And so uh, I'm just grateful for this opportunity. Now, one of the things that has been uh, a gift for me in the first six months I've been going to a lot of different small groups and uh, I have been asked this question over and over again. Hey, as you step into this role, like what's the vision that you have for Brookwood moving forward? Or what is the mission that you have or strategies that you're thinking? Or what's the staff structure that you're excited about moving forward? Anything new or exciting? And I want you to know that today on August 13th, I'm gonna share with you my vision for Brookwood Church. Are you ready? I don't think you're ready. Come on. <laughs> Here it is, this simple. Jesus at the center, that is my vision. And some of you go, why? Why are you that excited about that? And the reason that is, is such, a, such a stirring thought to me is because I want what's always been at the center of Brookwood to continue. And at the center of Brookwood has not been a vision. It has not been a strategy. It has not been a staff structure. It has not been a new exciting thing. It has not been a brand. It has not been a pastor. It has been one thing, the name above every name, the King of Kings and Lord of Lords, and that is Jesus at the center of this thing. And so I couldn't be more excited. And that doesn't mean that we won't have visions. In fact, God's put some things on my heart. As a staff, we're already talking and planning about things. But I do think it's important as, as we start off this season that we don't have a key focus being some strategy or something, but what has always been the center of this thing is Jesus. In fact, I love this. Uh, my son asked my wife the other day in the car, she said, so is dad like the boss of Brookwood now? And uh, very wisely, you know what she said? She said, actually, she gave him the Sunday school answer. She said, actually, Jesus is the boss. And uh, he looked all disappointed when she said that. And then you know what he says to her? He goes, oh, I guess dad's kind of like a sidekick then. <laughs> Isn't that awesome? And I love that because at the center of this church, really Jesus is what this thing is all about. And, and so much so that I didn't just coin this phrase, Jesus at the center. I actually wanna put my money where my mouth is. And so for the entire year, we're gonna be looking at this theme, Jesus at the center. And so we're gonna look at the miracles of Jesus for a year. We're gonna look at the birth of Jesus. We're gonna look at the parables of Jesus. We're gonna look at Jesus teaching the disciples on how to pray. 
And then today we are starting a new series called Jesus at the Center of the Church. And we're taking a look at the seven churches that Jesus gives a word or a letter to in the book of Revelation. In fact, you'll see uh, this little uh, picture back here. Uh, the seven churches were actually a part of a mail, or a mail route of that day. And so it starts off in Ephesus and then it works its way around. And so we're going to spend seven weeks looking at the churches, the words that Jesus has so the church will keep him at the center. On week eight, we're going to look at what Jesus calls a model church the church of Thessalonica, and then we're going to celebrate on our 30th anniversary on October 8th. And again, I couldn't be more excited. But again, I want you to see that at the center of this thing, we're going to put Jesus at the forefront. Now, as we kick off this series, let me just ask a question. How many of you in this room who've been a part of the church for some time would say, hey, you know what? I have been blessed or encouraged by someone in the church, or I've been encouraged by the church. If that's you, raise your hand. Okay, Quite a, quite a few of you, right? Now, you also have to answer this fairly because you're in a church. On the flip side, if you would say, I have been discouraged or hurt by the church or someone in the church, raise your hand. Okay, keep your hands up. Go ahead and point those people out right now. <laughs> Don't do that. But the truth is, is that we all know what it's like to be a part of a church where some of the greatest blessings some of the greatest encouragement and life is spoken to us by people in rooms like this. But the paradox is if you've been around the church for some time, not only do you get some of the greatest blessings, you also carry some of the greatest wounds and pain from people in the church. And oftentimes in those pains and those difficulties, a lot of people give up on the church. They just go, you know what? I don't want to be a part of it anymore. But I love what Philip Yancey says. He says, we do not give up on the institution of family because of its imperfections why give up on the church? The truth is all of us have opinions on the church. All of us have beliefs on the church. I have opinions on the church. You have opinions on the church. And some of those are really good. But what's important if we're gonna keep Jesus at the center of this church is not my opinions or my beliefs on the church or your opinions. It's what Jesus has to say on the church. And so what we're gonna do over these seven weeks is we're gonna take a look at what Jesus believes and calls the church to be. And so I want you to know if you have not been at the church for a very long time, in fact, this might be your first time at our church, or if you've been here for a very long time, if you're in a spot where you go, you know what, I feel really close to Jesus, or if you're in a spot where you're dry, and honestly, it's like you're in this room, but your heart is a million miles away. Maybe you're in a spot where you don't even know Jesus. Can I just say, I think you came at a perfect time as we kick off this series because we're gonna find out what Jesus' vision for the church is and what his vision for your life is. Now today, as we look at this church in Ephesus, let me give you just a little bit of background that will be helpful as we set up this series. Now, these letters uh, from the book of Revelation were actually written by the apostle John. Now, John is on an island called Patmos. You'll see the, the, the picture behind me. That is a picture of modern-day Patmos. It is a beautiful place you can actually visit today. It's about 13 square miles, and there are about 3,000 inhabitants at Patmos. But in ancient Roman times, this was actually a place where the Roman Empire would send murderers and thieves and outcasts. And so the apostle John has actually been banished by the Roman Empire for sharing his faith. So he's on this island, and when he's on this island, he encounters Jesus, and Jesus gives him these words, these letters for these churches. 
And the first church, again, is the church in Ephesus. Now, Ephesus was one of the most important cities in, in ancient Rome and around the area. In fact, it was the economic, religious, and cultural engine of its day. It was on a seaport, so you had tons of activities. People would come in. There was trade. Uh, equally popular was the church of Ephesus. In fact, you read about the Apostle Paul and great leaders like Timothy who were a part of this church. And at the uh, center of Ephesus was this place called the Temple of Artemis. It was one of the seven wonders of the world. And so Ephesus was a very important city with a very important church. And so with that in mind, Jesus starts off saying this to the church in Ephesus in Revelation 2.1. Write this letter to the angel of the church in Ephesus. This is the message from the one who holds the seven stars in his right hand, the one who walks among the seven gold lampstands. Some of you are going, what in the world does that mean? Now, the word angel here actually means messenger. And so this could be pastor, this could be a leader, or it could be someone who's in charge of the church at that particular time. Now, the term lampstand there actually refers to the churches and stars refer again to the pastors and the leaders. So if you're ever wondering what you should call me, angel will be sufficient. Actually, please don't do that. That would, that'd be quite odd. But here's the deal. You read this and you go, okay, what's going on here? Remember, this was a mail route. And so what would happen? Jesus shows up to John on this island and then he writes these letters, the pastor. So think about this. The pastor would stand in front of the congregation and he would say, here's what Jesus has to say to the church. And so he would read that to the different churches and they would be hearing it with fresh ears and they'd be seeing it with fresh eyes. And in every letter that Jesus gives through the apostle John, he's gonna do two things. He's gonna commend what's going well. He's gonna encourage them. But then he's gonna confront or correct what he does not like. And so he starts off with what he's going to commend. And this is what he says in verses two and three. I know all the things you do. I have seen your hard work, your patient endurance. I know you do not tolerate evil people. You have ex ex examined the claims of those who say they are apostles but are not. You have discovered they are liars. You have patiently, patiently suffered for me without quitting. And so the first thing he says to this church, the first thing he commends, you'll see in your program, is this. He commends them from being, for being hardworking. In fact, when it says you are a hardworking church, that literally means to work to the point of exhaustion. And one of the things that I have known about being a pastor is being a pastor is it's hard work. And that's why I have gratitude for people like Perry. I was just thinking about the fact that I mentioned this the first time I visited. You will probably hear some story of some pastor who's had a moral fall. You'll hear some failure of the church. You will hear all these negative things, but you know what you probably won't hear in the front of the New York Times or the Greenville Times if there is such a thing? You will not hear about a pastor who's been faithful for 30 years, who's served and honored God, who's blessed many people. But I will tell you this, although it won't make the front of the New York Times, I believe it will be the front page news of heaven. Amen? Because that's what matters. In fact, I know he's in here somewhere. I won't make him uh, stand up. But if you've been blessed by his leadership and what he has done, would you just join me one more time? I know we already thanked him, but would you join me in thanking Perry for just 30 years? of faithful leadership. 
And I know he hates that, but I have the microphone now, so he has to deal with it. But I want, I want to say this too. We have some ways we're going to honor Perry. Uh, later on in the next few weeks, we have cards that on the 30th anniversary, we're going to give to him. And so I just encourage you, you'll hear more about that. But uh, be thinking about a, a verse or an encouraging note or a word that you can say to Perry and what, that, what that's meant. We want to just bombard him uh, as we honor him. So this is the first thing that, that uh, John says through Jesus, this church is hardworking. The second thing he does is he affirms their perseverance. Notice it says that you, you have this patient endurance. That word for endurance is actually the Greek word. It's a fun word to say. It's hupamune, hupamune. And what it literally means, this word hupamune means to bear and stay faithful under great crushing pressure. To stay faithful under great crushing pressure. And you go, well, what was the pressure they were facing? This church had been in existence for 40 years and they were experiencing widespread persecution from the Roman empire. In fact, you read about stories of Nero and Domitian, these Roman emperors who would kill Christians in these violent ways. And so what they would do oftentimes, they would throw them in these arenas with wild animals. Oftentimes they would, they would dip these Christians alive in this tar, this pitch. They would mount them to these stakes. They would light them on fire and they were like these nocturnal lights, brutal stuff. They would also drill into Christians' head and pour this, this liquid metal in there. And what, what Jesus is saying is you've had all of this persecution, all of this pressure, and you haven't caved in. You've stayed faithful. You've persevered under this. And he's commending them. And then he goes on to commend them for their holiness. Listen to what he says again in verse two. You do not tolerate wicked, evil people. You don't tolerate sin. Now, if you visit modern day Ephesus today, you'll see some of the ruins. And one of the things you'll still see today is you will see signs that actually point to brothels. And so prostitution, sexual perversion was a big part of this culture. It was like a modern day sin city. In fact, there was a temple I mentioned that was one of the seven wonders of the world, the temple of Artemis that was associated with prostitution. And so you have false prophets, you have all this sexual perverse cultural stuff going on. And here's what Jesus says, in the midst of this, you haven't bowed down. You haven't caved in. You've stayed faithful to me. And so he's commending their holiness. Now imagine for a moment that, that we're reading this and you don't know the whole thing Jesus is saying. So imagine you're just a part of this church. You're a part of Ephesus. I'm up here reading this letter and Jesus is going, all right, you're holy. Like you're persevering, you're enduring. There'd be a part of you that'd be like, oh, stop it, Jesus. But on the inside, you'd be like, bring it on. And so you gotta imagine this church is probably going, this is good. Jesus is seeing my holiness. He's seeing my hard work. He's seeing my faithfulness. But in any marriage or any relationship, you know when someone says, hey, I love you and you're doing a great job, but you know something's coming. Because Jesus, in the middle of all these great commendations, he says this. It says, yet or but I hold this against you. And what does he hold against you? You have forsaken. You have forsaken the love that you had at first. Notice he doesn't say hey, you don't love me anymore. What does he say? He says, your heart doesn't beat for me like it once did. He said, somewhere in the activity of life, even in the good events, somewhere in coming to church, somewhere in reading your Bible, some, somewhat in the activity of life and the job and the bills and everything going on, somewhere your heart and your passion and your love for me has grown cold. He's not saying you don't love me. He's just saying, you don't love me like you once did. 
And can I just say that as a follower of Jesus, maybe the most difficult thing in my life, and I'd imagine in yours, is keeping my heart on fire for Jesus. It feels like sometimes I wake up in the morning and I'm reading the Bible and I'm just in tune and I'm encountering the spirit. There are times where I'm in the church and it's like we're worshiping and it just seems like God is pouring so much life. And there's other times where I'm reading the Bible and it's like my heart is a million miles away. There are times when I'm singing about Christ be magnified and the truth is I'm not thinking about him at all. Keeping your heart passionate for Jesus is one of the most difficult things. And so he's saying to this church that on the outside has one of the best resumes around. You're holy. You're enduring persecution. You've got all these great programs, but your love for me somewhere has grown cold. When you sing about me, you don't sing from a joyful place. When you read the Bible, you don't think what it was like when you first met me. You don't think about the spirit of God that is alive, that calls you a son or daughter of God. And so he starts to tell this church they're doing a bunch of great things, but there is something that is missing. And honestly, what I find is when you say things like Jesus at the center of the church, there's some of us that almost feel disappointed with that answer because it almost feels too elementary. And so deep down we think, hey, we love Jesus, but what we really need is strategies. We need some things that are gonna help us be passionate about Jesus. And so subconsciously, when you go to a church, a lot of times we put things at the center that we think are important alongside of Jesus. So it's not that we don't think Jesus is central, but we'll start saying things like, you know what, what we really need is this or that or this. And the problem with that is this, if you put anything other than Jesus at the center, the church never functions as it was intended to. In fact, Ephesus is a prime example of what happens when you put strategies or you think that certain things alongside of Jesus will keep your heart on fire for God. Because some people say, hey, you know what I think we need to keep our hearts on fire for Jesus? We need great pastors. We need incredible pastors. And the truth is, is that when you look at the church of Ephesus, you would be hard pressed to find better leaders of any church. The apostle Paul who wrote most of the New Testament is leading this church. He has personally trained up Timothy, Aquila, and Priscilla. You have John who's led this church. And yet Jesus says, although they've had all this great leadership, it wasn't enough to keep the church of Ephesus' heart on fire for him. See, I really believe this. Pastors can draw a crowd, but only the Spirit of God can transform us. And so we cannot put our hope or our stock in a pastor or a strategy. Some people go, hey, you know what? You're right. I don't think it's a pastor. But what I do think is, and think about this, pressure test this. Some of us go, I think if we saw miracles right now, like if several people came up front and, and they were healed in the name of Jesus, I think if we saw some of that, it would be enough to keep our hearts on fire for Jesus. Never grow cold. The problem is Ephesus had that. In fact, I invite you today to read the chapter Acts 19, which is all about the church of Ephesus. You will read about miracle after miracle that happens. In fact, one of the things that happens, Paul has like this towel or handkerchief. He literally touches it. This towel is taken to sick people and just this towel as it touches these sick, sick people, they're healed. They had miracle after miracle happening and yet all the supernatural miracles were not enough to keep this church's fire and their love and their devotion for Jesus hot. Because the truth is, even after we experience the miracles of God, it cannot keep the human heart from grumbling, from disappointment. So some people go, you know what, you're right, it's probably not pastors, 
It's probably not miraculous stuff, but you know what I think? If we saw this in our day, I don't think we'd ever grow cold. And some people say it's cultural impact. We just got to make a difference in the world. We've got to go, you know, do all these things overseas, or we got to see revival here. And I believe if we saw those things, nothing would ever change in our hearts and our spirits. We'd be on fire for Jesus. Everything would be great. The problem with that is when you read Acts chapter 19, the whole thing, the culture was turned upside down. Brothels, prostitution was stopped. Thousands of people are coming to faith in Jesus. And so there is this cultural movement, and yet Jesus goes, despite all those things, it wasn't enough to keep your heart and your passion and your love for me. And some people hear that and they go, yeah, yeah, I get that it's probably not culture impact. You know what it is? It's got to be discipleship. It's got to be mission. Because the problem is we have so many people that just come and attend church, and what we need is to move people from consumers to strong Christians, And so if we can just get them in intense discipleship programs and we can get them studying the Bible constantly, that will be enough. The problem is, is that when you look at the church in Ephesus, they had this school called the School of Tyrannus. They met all hours of the night. They were in intensive, deep Bible studies, great theological training, and yet all that training could not keep their hearts on fire for Jesus. And some people go, all right, Finally, you've convinced me. Here's what I really think it is. And you hear people say this all the time. It's the Bible. All we got to do is preach the Bible. And if we just make doctrine the thing, that will be great. And people will come alive. The problem is, is that it's one thing to know the Bible. It is another thing to know the God of the Bible. Amen. Some of the most knowledgeable people on planet earth were the Pharisees and yet their hearts were cold. You can know maps, you can know words, but do you know the spirit of God? that causes you to have a sensitivity and a love for him. And so in essence, what Jesus says to this church is is fairly convicting. He goes, you're holy. You got all these programs. You got all these events. You're doing great things, but somewhere, somewhere your passion and your love and your commitment for me is waned. And can I just say this? For years in my life, I thought as you get older that you really traded passion for wisdom, right? Right? Because when you see kids jumping around or a new Christian, that's what they do. But as you get older, there's a, there's a wisdom or a maturity you have, but Jesus seems to take issue with that. And perhaps that's why the challenge for all of us is to have a childlike faith, because there is a passion and a love for him that he calls us all to have. Notice he's not saying, do you love me? He's just saying, does your heart beat for me like it once did? Does it beat for me like it once did? Do you love me? Do you chase after me like you once did? Or somewhere in the rhythm of life, have you just accepted that this is the new reality? And so he calls them to a deeper place. And so again, that's why if you put anything other than Jesus at the center of the church, it won't work. Because what the church needs is not strategies at the center. What it needs is a savior, amen? It needs someone to awaken the human heart and cause us to live for him. And so let me just encourage you with this. If you're in a place where you go, I've just kind of accepted that this is life. That my heart doesn't beat for him like it once did. Or somewhere I've just gotten busy and there's activities. Or maybe you're in the place where you're like, that's great, Brian. I am not the type of person that God would ever awaken and use. 
Can I just encourage you with this? I said this a couple weeks ago. I will continue to say it every single time I can, but you serve a God who's in the resurrection business. I want to remind you of that. Resurrection was not a historical event. It is a daily event because what the spirit of God does is he comes in and he awakens marriages that are broken and he gives you new hope. He takes hearts that are cold and distanced and he awakens them to new life that you never thought possible. He takes people that go, hey, that's not me. I'm not a candidate for that. And he goes, you know what? I'm gonna grow you and use your life in ways that only I can get credit for because that's what he does. That's who he is. Now, let me just say this. If you're in this place and you want your heart to grow, if you want your passion to increase, you go, what does that look like? What do I do? Well, there's two things that Jesus corrects that are the same thing the church in Ephesus has to do. And really, they're the same thing that we have to do. The first thing he says is this. You have to repent. You have to repent. Listen to what it says in Revelation chapter two, verse five. Consider how far you have fallen. Repent and do the things you did at first. Now that word fallen there is actually the same word you read about when you read about Adam and Eve when they fell in the garden. It's the same word you read about when you hear about Isaiah and Satan fell like lightning. But when you think about repentance, it's often got a churchy sort of connotation to it, but repentance at its core is not a feeling. Repentance is simply putting Jesus and returning him where he belongs at the center of your life and at the center of everything. That is the invitation that we have. And can I say that, that there are probably a lot of things that, that will keep us from a white heart, white hot passion for Jesus. But I think in this day and age, I want you to jot these down. I think there are two things that probably keep our passion from Jesus more than any other thing. And it's simply this, comfort and calendar. Comfort and calendar. And so oftentimes I will say things to God like, man, I want more of you. But really what it is, is I want more of you when it's convenient for me. I don't want you to speak to me in the middle of my Netflix show. I don't want you to wake me up in the middle of the night. I need my eight hours of sleep, but I want more of you. God, I don't want you to cause me to give more or prompt more. And even times you ever have these moments, there are times where you'll be in a service if you're anything like me and you're like, Jesus, I want more of you. And then you go to lunch or you're hanging out with something and he prompts something, a word to say, a verse to say. And I'm like, Jesus, I'm just trying to enjoy my Mexican food here. And yet it's, it's that I want him, but deep down, I want him when it's convenient and comfortable. And so in essence, I think oftentimes when the spirit speaks, I'll just silence him a little bit. You know, when you hit snooze on the alarm button, you know what happens if you hit it enough? It stops going off. And sometimes in my comfort, when I just silence the spirit, what happens is there's just this coldness that starts to creep in. So can I encourage you, whatever, whatever the spirit prompts you, be faithful to that. Don't let comfort cut off your passion. The second thing is calendar. I'll never forget years ago, I was telling God, you know what? I love you. I, I, I'm just, I give all of my heart to you. And then I remember thinking about this fact that he just sort of put on my heart. Well, what is your, what is your, what is your calendar reflect? And I was a pastor and I was thinking about the fact that oftentimes that there, my schedule does not allow me any space to hear from God. Because the truth is our schedule, our calendar, we can say all that we want, but our calendar really does reflect where our priorities are. And so oftentimes we are so busy with certain events and extracurricular activities, and this isn't to shame people, it's just saying, if you want your heart passionate for Jesus, you have to get honest. And there are so many projects and so many activities and so many things that are going on. And sometimes the schedule and activities that we're filled to the brim with aren't just extracurricular activities, they're church activities. 
And sometimes there are so many people involved in so many events that sometimes you can't hear from God because you're busy with all these activities. Remember what Jesus says to Martha and Mary? All of a sudden, they're rolling around and and Martha's upset because she's got all these activities to do. Mary's at the feet of Jesus. She's got to cook. She's got a plan. She's got all this, you know, meal stuff to do because it's Sunday and Chick-fil-A's closed. And so she's upset. And then all of a sudden Jesus goes, hey, but she's done the better thing. And really, what is he saying? He's saying, you've got to create space for your heart to be connected to me. You've got to find this place where you create margin and space to hear the spirit of God because you can get involved with a million great activities, but then your heart becomes cold. And that's in essence what he said to Ephesus. I love your holiness. I love that you show up. But don't forget what it's about when you first beheld grace. Don't forget what it's about when you sing these worship songs. Don't forget why you open the Bible because you encounter the King of Kings and Lord of Lords. Don't let your heart miss that. And it is so easy with comfort and calendar. Can I just encourage you as well with this, that I really believe that when you repent, it's, it's your way of saying, Jesus, I see your value and worth. Because if you're anything like me, for most of my life, I didn't really feel like Jesus alone was enough. And so I just felt prompted as I was praying that there's some of you who are in your 20s and 30s and 40s. And like this church in Ephesus, you love Jesus. But you are falling prey to the notion that you need something else beside Jesus at the center of your life to add value. And I'm just telling you, do not get to the end of your life thinking that success, power, glory, Even family can satisfy the deepest longings of your heart. Repentance is not about feeling sorry. Repentance at its core is seeing that Jesus Christ is the greatest thing on planet earth and nothing else satisfies. It is about putting him right where he belongs. And for years of my life, even as a pastor, I put success there. And I just want to simply say, if you are putting anything other than Jesus, it's not that your vision is too big, it's too small. In fact, listen to what one guy says. He wasn't a Christian. He said this uh, at a graduation, sobering words. Right after this graduation, he didn't know Jesus. Right after this graduation, he said these words, he ended up killing himself. But listen to what this writer, this novelist, David Foster says, everybody worships. The only choice we get is what we worship. And the compelling reason for maybe choosing some sort of God or spiritual type thing to worship is that pretty much anything else you worship will eat you alive. If you worship money and things, if they are where you tap real meaning in life, you will never have enough. Worship your body and beauty and sexual allure and you will always feel ugly. And when time and age start showing, you will die a million deaths before they finally grieve you. Worship power. And you will end up feeling weak and afraid and you will need ever more power over others to numb your own fear. Worship your intellect, being seen as smart and you will end up feeling stupid, a fraud, always on the verge of being found out. It is the kindness of God. It is the kindness of God. It is the kindness of God that leads you to repentance. It's nothing more because repentance is letting go of a lesser thing for a greater thing. Repentance is going with my one life, success is too small. With my one life, money is too small. With my one life, power is too small. And it's interesting, I was watching a documentary of this famous athlete. And he said this sobering phrase. He said, when I got to the biggest stage in my life, I had never felt more empty. And that's Jesus' kindness that goes, repent, repent. Repent of comfort or calendar or all these other things that come in. But the second thing he says is, remember, remember. 
Now, it's interesting when you think about this. Do you know that the average human being forgets four things every single day? For men, it's safe to say that number is at least triple that. Amen? (laughs) But it's amazing what you forget, right? Now, let me ask you this question. Do you know what the most repeated command in the Bible is? Do you know the most repeated command in the Bible? I said it before. Fear not. Do you know what the second most repeated command in the Bible is? Hence, it's what I'm just pointing on. Remember, isn't that interesting? The most repeated command in the Bible is fear not. The second most repeated command in the Bible is remember. Why? Because we're forgetful people. You ever think about when Jesus is teaching the disciples the Lord's Supper? How weird it would have been. He's right in front of them and he says, do this in remembrance of me. Because he knows that even though in that moment they're right in front of him, they are so prone to forget all of his goodness and all of his blessings. And so it's interesting with the apostle Paul, three times in the book of Acts, three times in the book of Acts, he keeps talking about his Damascus road experience. Why? I think it's because he didn't want to forget. He wanted to constantly remember and keep that thing central in his life. See, we have an invitation to remember and not forget the blessings we have. I'll never forget years ago, um, my wife and I, when we first got married, we never did the marriage counseling thing. And so uh, we had to work through a lot of things. But my wife told me uh, about a week and a half before she said, hey, I want you to clean out this closet. I'm going to take care of these activities. You got to clean out the closet. Now, I waited for a long time to clean out the closet. And one day she said, I've had enough. She's like, you can't go out until you clean out the closet, right? And so she was going out that day, and I'll just tell you, I did not take it as a mature, responsible person. I was very disappointed that I had to clean out the closet. And so I started cleaning it out. Most of it was just with a bad attitude. In fact, a few hours into cleaning, I asked her, I called her up, and I said something to the effect of, hey, babe, is it all right if I take a lunch break, or is that okay with you? And so, listen, before counseling, we're way better now, all right? It's church, it's a safe place. And so I start saying all these things, and I texted her something to the effect of, hey, and again, not my strongest moments. I get it. And we have uh, re-engage. If you're interested in marriage, you can join that thing as well. But uh, I texted her something like, hey, um, I got done. Is there anything else you need to aid off? I mean, I'm just doing all these different things. And, and you know what happened? I know. It's a safe place. You guys, you guys got your own skeletons. Leave me alone, all right? And so I'm doing all this stuff. I start cleaning out the closet. I'm not happy. And I, you can't make this up. We had this like whole box of memories we had. We were high school sweethearts. And so I start looking at all these pictures we had, all these letters we have, all these memories we had. All of a sudden, it's like my heart moves from angered and frustrated to just like happy and grateful and joyful. No joke, my wife shows up and, and like she, she, I hear the door getting ready to open. I walk up to her and I'm like, babe, I love you. And she says something to the effect of like, what'd you break? <laughs> but what happened in that moment? One second, I'm upset, I'm angry, I'm frustrated. Next second, I'm filled with gratitude and love. Why? Because I remembered. I started sitting and remembered what it was like when we went on our first date. I started remembering memories that I had forgotten about. I started remembering trips we had gone on and vacations and words we had shared. You know what Jesus is saying to you? He's saying, you've got to be a person who remembers the depths of his love for you. Do you remember what it was like when you first beheld grace? Do you remember what it was like when you sat in a room and you realized you were loved by God? Do you remember what it was like when you were in a room and you found out the gospel doesn't just say you're loved, you're liked, that God wants to hang out with you? 
Do you remember what it's like when God said, hey, you are so pleasing that I, the God of the universe, want to spend time with you each and every day. Do you know what it's like when you heard that you weren't just saved, but you were also a son or daughter of God? Do you know what it's like when you remembered for the first time that you were crowned as an heir of God to join him in his dominion and rule? Do you know what it's like when you found out the same power that raised Jesus from the grave lives inside of you? He says, you got to go back and remember those things because once you see that, it transforms everything. And so we got to be people who remember the goodness of God, remember what you have so that you don't spend your life trying to earn what you already have in Jesus. Full life, full power, full joy. And so one of the things I'm really excited about, I just want to give you this, is that you'll see behind me there is a, a screenshot of a devotional that we've been working on. And so with this series, um, all of this sermon series, one of the things that I felt led is if we're going to go deeper and dive deeper into our relationship with God, we need to kind of do this together in unity. And so there is a devotional that we're going to do each and every day that goes along with this series. And so I've written the first three weeks of this, so I just, I'm speaking on this church in Ephesus and repentance. You can download that app right there where you see devotionals and we can track along as a church each and every day to keep our eyes fixed on Jesus so that we can remember him. And so I think if you are in this place where you're going, I want more of God, I want more of God, and he's stirring something in you, one of the first places you've got to start, Jesus says, is remembering him. And if you remember him once a week on a Sunday, your heart will not get to the place where it's alive and on fire and committed to him. So take this tool. And if you have another tool, add this to it, do a different tool. That's fine. But every single day, what would it look like if we got in the presence of God and we started to remember his goodness? On the way out, you'll also see that we have some devotional books for those of you who, who want something in your hand. I would ask this, um, don't take a copy for everyone in your extended family, if possible. Uh, we do have uh, limited copies, but if that's a, a resource that you would love, we would love to get that in your hand. Let me close with this, and then I want to pray a, a prayer blessing over us. I just saw this picture the other day, and it was interesting to me because a friend of mine, this is actually a, pif a picture of Ephesus Harbor. And so you can see that, that that little spot where the water is was where Ephesus was, and they used to have that harbor go all the way out into the ocean. But over time, this thing got silted up, and mud and dirt and erosion happened. And so what you see right now is what Ephesus Harbor is at this point. But someone told me this a little while ago, I heard him say this, that they are actually in the process of, of excavating that and drilling that spot out. And that harbor is actually going to be extended and the water's gonna flow back in. And here's why I thought that was so interesting. This is amazing what technology can do. But I just want to say this as we close, as amazing as technology is, it does not compare to the power of God. That picture, I believe, is maybe a source of hope for marriages that just feel dry. God can restore those marriages. I think that picture is a source of hope for people who've been struggling with secret addictions and you feel like you're just destined to grind it out for the next 10 years. I want to tell you, technology is amazing, but you will never, ever fully understand what the kingdom of God is capable of. And what he wants to do is take people and marriages and hearts that are cold and he wants to bring new life to them. And so can I just encourage you, wherever you are, let me just encourage you with this thought as I close. Whatever visions or plans you have for your life or this church, I just want to say this, they're too small. The apostle Paul says this, beyond what you could ever hope or imagine, you, you have a God 
whatever you could dream for your life, it is that much better. And so can I just say, as you're in this spot at the start of this year, I believe God wants to take deeper life. I believe he wants to grow things in. And may this be an encouragement to you that as we repent and as we remember God, his spirit, his life will transform us as we keep him at the center. Let me just pray a commissioning prayer over us as we end today. Holy Spirit, we thank you for your goodness. We thank you that we just get a moment to sit even today and remember the depths of your love. I pray, God, that you would awaken us to your love, your mercy, your power. I pray that the seeds of the gospel would take root. I pray for those of us who've just believed that this is it, that you would awaken a passion and a life that only you would get the credit for. I pray as people each and every day, starting tomorrow, spend time with you, that you would capture their hearts and their imaginations. I pray you would give us visions and dreams, that you would help us keep you at the center because really you are the most valuable thing on planet earth and in the universe. So God, we love you. We thank you for this. We thank you for the ability to to meet today. God, we pray that everything we do would glorify and exalt the name of Jesus. And so we just want to give you our lives. It's in your amazing, mighty, wonderful name we pray. Everyone agreed and said, Amen. amen. You guys are dismissed. If you have any prayer requests,